I believe health is the greatest form of wealth we have, which is why I'm proud to be partnered with Brothers in Arms. Brothers in Arms is a wellness brand dedicated to working with veterans, first responders, and anyone on the front line. Through their education, support, and premium CBD products, they help alleviate and restore the lives of those that have been affected by physical and mental trauma. Learn about the life-changing benefits and power of CBD and join their community today. Links can be found on the MCP website and IG page. Welcome to episode 44 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. Many people have had to become accustomed to wearing physical masks as part of their work, long before they became part of our recent everyday life. Regardless of where you stand on the effectiveness of masks in social situations, we can all agree that we'd rather not be wearing them. That's the thing with masks. Necessary or not, justified or not, they aren't our natural state. And we all breathe a deep sigh of relief when we take them off. But for some people, wearing psychological masks, depending on whose company they are in, is as natural as breathing. Perhaps they have been necessary PPE since they were a child, and they have never known life without them. For others, it's been a conscious choice. There are people you work with that you know, you have never met the real them, and it prevents true bonding and trust. Conscious or subconscious, it's not relaxed or authentic. And these masks don't just filter what others perceive, they filter what the wearer perceives and receives, creating a forced negative feedback cycle. Wouldn't it be such a deep sigh of relief for them and everyone around them if they could be comfortable with embracing the discomfort of the journey to discover and display who they really are in all company, to be the same person wherever they go? We all have a part to play in that. Through his personal and professional life, My guest this episode has found genuine relationship with self and genuine relationship with others to be paramount in his ability to notice and fully experience the joyous moments. It's a pleasure to help you get to know Mark Arnold. Tell me where you grew up. Give me your structure of your family and your upbringing and we'll go from there. Yeah, I grew up in London, Ontario, Canada. I don't have a incredibly exciting story. Grew up in like a blue collar working family. My dad worked for Labatt's, the brewery. And my mom was stay at home and then she went to go work at a school as a secretary. So younger brother, older brother, older sister. My sister's a paramedic. My younger brother's a firefighter. So we have a family that sort of been involved in the emergency services. And what was your school experience like growing up? I went to school so I could see people and recess was amazing. And then in high school, it was like I went to go play sports and, and hang out with uh, my friends at lunch. And I went to a larger school with was pretty ethnically diverse and, and lots of people from different backgrounds. And my school was situated downtown. So half of my friends were like from one side of the town and then half were from the other side of the town. But I think that was a really good way to grow up, growing up with people of all different backgrounds. And what about sports or hobbies as a kid? I would play whatever was there, essentially. So in high school, I played rugby and wrestled and played some football. That was sort of what kept me going 
and kept me engaged in school. I was an okay student, but it wasn't really engaging for me. Like I wanted to get through this and get this done. And then I was going to go to university and get that done. And then I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I knew I had to get these things done. So it was like, okay, well, let's go. And what about guides or mentors through all of that? My coaches were probably my biggest guides my rugby coach and he I would go and talk to him he worked in guidance so that was ideal I go chat with him but I would say that I probably struggle with mentors even to this point today like who do I who do I go and see as a mentor whose opinion do I value and probably as a younger kid or even into my 20s I was probably a bit of a know-it-all and I wouldn't have been receptive to getting advice But I think that's changed as I've matured. And I I think books had a lot to do with changing my mind on things. I did have people that I trusted and would follow. And they were more in my time when I was a police officer that I would would talk to them. Mm -hmm. And I trusted them. You wrote to me that you did a lot of shooting and you had a lot of dads around you at that time of your life. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's true. So growing up, it was like a weekly or bi-weekly thing that I would go and shoot clay pigeons and like skeet shooting. And I did a lot of that. If you ever read the book like Outliers or uh, like Daniel Coyle's Talent Code, which is also an excellent book, we just did more. We did, my brother and I and my dad, we did more shooting than anybody else. At the gun club, I had like 20 dads, right? So they were there like every weekend to just relax and and do do their thing. And then we had these rug rats, which were like my brother and I running around and we were like eight and nine and 10 and 12 at that time. And so if we stepped out of line at all, they were telling us because we're ruining their weekend. (laughs) Right? So it was great because I have a lot of respect for those guys. And like you got the straight goods. They didn't have to be nice to you because they were not your family. But the virtue of them being there, you got an unfiltered version of how to be like a good kid. Right. right. Because if, if you're acting like an idiot, they would tell you. This can be the way with mentors and guides too. They're not always official in the mind of the mentor and guide or of the person that's on the receiving end, right? It's just the people that are in your circle, in your environment by default end up being those people. Yeah. I think it really matters who you spend time with. Like it's a big thing where I pick and choose who I spend time with. I think there's a saying, like, you're the most like the five people you hang around and the books you read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've become more selective as I've gotten older, like who I spend time with. You mentioned getting on the police force, so I'm not sure where that fits in with where your first exposure to the fire service is. But first, give me sort of the jobs you had before the fire service growing up, and then uh, talk to me about when you were first exposed to the fire service. Right. Now we're going to get old timey because I'm going to talk about like being a paper boy. And like as a kid and having like a daily route where I deliver the paper every morning, get up at six. And But I think that was formative in terms of it's just not something kids do anymore. Like teaching responsibility and going out and getting up and every morning you'd be out there in the snow, like delivering papers and like a paper bag door to door. But, you know, that was great. That was pretty formative. I was involved in the air cadet program from 12 to 18. And that was a huge part of my life. I learned a lot in terms of leadership, and I guess my mentors, a lot of them would be there. I had more leadership training in that organization than I did in, well, since I was 20 to now, in the last 40, or sorry, uh, 25 years. That was a huge, huge thing for me. Maybe they can help us develop an officer development program for the fire service. (laughs) You mean there isn't one? (laughs) (laughs) Somewhere along the lines, 
and and I can only speak, uh, this is where you tread lightly because I think we can do better when it comes to leadership within the fire service. We just don't get any training in regards to that. What specific things do you think you would pull from that air cadet time that you would still hold true today? Well, I think it it taught me a lot of leadership lessons on how to deal with people and also discipline and responsibility and structure within an organization and planning and training. And it wasn't all given to us, maybe like a Boy Scout thing. It was something where they would develop us and say, you run with it, you create this program, you deliver it, and we're here to guide you. We had great people within that organization. I was sort of blessed to fall within that. But I'm finding now that within the fire service and my work within our wellness fitness initiative that not everybody is up to the task of just running with a project or knowing how to get things done. And the fire service really doesn't teach you how to do that. So I'm not sure how we're going to get people that are firefighters that move up to become next level, say, off the fire ground to be administrators or development leaders because the job does not train you to get to those positions. So you're going to have to seek training and experience outside of the organization if you want to move on to that next level. You mentioned that you did some camp counseling and tree planting in Northern Ontario as well. (laughs) Yeah. And if anybody has done tree planting, like real Northern Ontario or BC tree planting, hats off to them because that is the hardest job that I think I'll have ever done. I'm glad I did it, but it was incredibly challenging, difficult. The bugs were just enough to drive you crazy. And like every night when you go to sleep, you're sleeping in tents out in the clear cut. And when I say clear cut, I mean like there isn't a tree. If you got up on the highest hill that you could see, if you looked in every direction, there is not a tree. It is like massive, massive deforestation. And we were there planting trees and we're making eight cents a tree. And the first $30 of your day went to a camp cost. So it tells you how much money you're making. And you really had to, you're doing 11 hour days from the first tree in the ground to the last tree in the ground. Your nights were just like, you're exhausted. And then at night you'd be in your tent and you'd hear hair brushing up against the side of your tent, like, like somebody's walking by and there were bears. At the first couple of nights, I didn't sleep because I was petrified that the bear was going to come through the nylon tent and eat me. After that, I was just too exhausted that I just didn't care anymore. It was a great experience, and it was, I only did it for one year. People go back, but it was how I paid for my second year of university, which I think was a good thing because I valued it, and nobody was paying for me, and I didn't go into debt through like a government assistance program or anything like that, so... It was worthwhile, but I I definitely learned the value of when you do piecework, meaning like you have to, you're trading your whatever you're doing, one item, you get paid for that item, then you learn the value of hard work. I'm sure you've seen it where you have young guys come into the fire service and they've been in school from the time, whatever, the high school right into college and they go into a fire service program and then they graduate that and they get hired young. And my only criticism of that is that you haven't actually done anything that sucked. And you think the structure of your day at the fire hall is what a job is? Well, yeah, like there's no breadth and depth of your experience. I hear people complain about some of the stupidest things. And I'm like, oh, you've never done a crappy job. Your perception is warped, right? And, and I think that's when I see somebody or meet somebody new in the hall. I'm like, well, tell me what you've done outside of here. Because that's what I'm really interested in. And, and I think it, it shapes who that person is. 
I think it was Katrina Moore when I was interviewing her. She talked about how they were very critical about how the trees were planted as well. It wasn't just drop it in the ground and keep moving on. You can plant them all in an hour. Yeah, no, they would check them. They would they would throw plots. And then if your quality wasn't good, you'd have to go back and replant your entire like section of ground, which would take you the rest of the day and you'd end up losing money. So yeah, quality control was big. But I remember just having so many bug bites that it was bleeding through my shirt. And like at that time, we were using like copious amounts of like muscal, like bug repellent, which was 99% DEET. And it was the only thing that would keep the bugs off you. But I remember my skin on the back of my neck was one giant scab from the, the bug repellent that was lathered on. And the topography isn't very easy to work on either. It's not like a clear farm field where you're planting these trees. No, it's all rocks and roots and you're stepping over stuff or it's wet. And yeah, it's northern Ontario, like boreal forest. It's it's uh, uneven ground. And, and, you know, I haven't planted a west, but the people I talk to have planted a west is you're, you're planting on the side of a mountain. So the only thing that sucked for Ontario maybe more was the bugs. And some of the areas were really rocky. So you're trying to plant and you, like every fourth shovel touch would be soil, right? So you'd be tap, tap, tap and then you'd put in a tree. And so what was your first exposure to emergency services? And you obviously went the route of police force first. So walk me through how you ended up from entering into the police force and ended up on fire. Yeah, so growing up, we had friends of the family who were in the police service. And I think that was maybe the ignition point where I'm like, oh, they're good stand-up guys and I like them. And you have to remember also, it was a different time, right? So we're talking... Late 90s, when this was going down and policing was a respected, trusted profession. At that point, it was a really respected job. Within that immediate area too, we had friends who were in the fire service. And I remember going to a fire hall when I was young and uh, one of the captains showing us around the fire hall and red trucks and poles and you walk around and say hi to the guys. And But when I was young, it just didn't seem to me as like, I'm like, I want to go drive around in a fast car and have a gun and like do the stuff you see on TV, right? So, and maybe your background in shooting also led you towards that route. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, my brother, we got into the fire service fairly young too, and we came from a similar background. So, I was just like, you know what? Let me examine and explore this. And I spent my 20s in policing, and then I was like, you know what? If I want this to be sustainable long term, and if I want to find out what retirement looks like, then I need to make a switch. And that's when I decided to look to the fire service because I'd done enough calls with those guys and they seem to be happy. And when they come off the truck, they're like working together as a team. And those were things that I was lacking in policing. What else disenchanted you about, like what was the wake up call when you entered into policing? Was there a culture shift or a public perspective change during that time as well? Or was it the curtain being drawn back to you about that career and making fires seeming more palatable? I mean, don't get me wrong. I liked it. I liked it for a bit. And then it was it was catching up with me in terms of like the type of work. So when you drive around with a fire truck, all the little kids look at you and wave and are happy to see you. That's not the case when you drive around a police car. Parents will grab their kids and then shake them and point at you. And they're like, if you don't behave, then they're going to come and get you. So it was just a really negative work environment in terms of like every day, every call you went to was probably one of the worst days of people's lives. So when you do that day after day after day, it catches up with you. And it was just a thing where if you treated people poorly to start, 
that was a protection mechanism for you as an officer, right? If you just start with the premise that they're lying to you or that they're trying to deceive you and to don't give them an inch because it's safer that way. And, you know, honestly, Scott, I looked downstream and I looked at the guys who were retiring and there was a lot of broken marriages and a lot of people with drinking problems and they just weren't coming out the other end very well. And I didn't think that I was special in terms of being able to survive that onslaught and come out any differently. That's where I had to make a change. And I was like, you know, when I'm young enough, I can let me try. And and I was fortunate enough to be able to make that switch over to fire. And what was the process of getting on like for you? I didn't have to struggle like some guys struggled. I was working out with a new guy at work. And I'm like, hey, um, how many times did you apply to the fire department? And he goes, well, I don't know. I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? It's like, yeah, I don't know. I probably like 56 times. And I'm like, 56 times? I, I didn't have that experience. Like I applied to one and I got in. So it was a couple of years from the time that I applied. I was working in Peel Region, the west side of Toronto, and then I applied to the department there. So I was fortunate enough to get on because I, I brought, I think I brought some experience to the table. I don't know how those scoring matrices work on the resumes though. If you could let me know, that'd be great. And what was your recruit experience like? We had a class of like 20 something and all of it was new to me. I wasn't a volunteer. So it was like learning the skills and just trying to keep my ears open and just fit in and be useful. Just pay attention, learn quickly and don't make the same mistakes twice. And then what about your rookie years? How was transitioning onto the floor in those early times? The training officers sort of made recommendations as to where people should go. I think they knew that me being sort of like a former officer that I'd want to be somewhere busy and they were right. So they sent me the busiest truck in the department, which was still like, oh, this is like a piece of cake. But it was great because I get to learn way faster than the people at the halls on the outside. Sometimes we're running like up to 20 calls a day in the in the shift. So it was great that way and learn fast. Were you pretty fit when you became an officer? Did your fitness approach change at that time? And then did it shift again when you got into fire? I think the big thing that people don't talk about, they don't talk about like stress hormones. And when people come on to the job or like their sleep is broken or they're under an incredible amount of stress, you have cortisol that's released. And it's really tough to try to battle that in terms of weight loss. And so when it came on, I was fairly fit because I was playing university rugby, but the shift work was killer. It just sucked the life out of you. And the lifestyle was a lot of like, you would go after shift and drink and stuff. So I ended up putting on a lot of weight in that amount of time. So it was like up over normally like 185, 190. And then I was quickly was up to like 220. So I whipped myself back into shape when I was applying to the fire department. And from there, I've tried to stay, like, it's just a lot easier to stay in shape than to try to get yourself back into shape. You wrote to me that you're trying to train a lot smarter and work on more mobility now. I think as you get older, like I'm 44 now, <laughs> at a certain point you stop caring. I mean, I do more intervals now. I used to go out and do like longer. I'm going to go for like a long bike ride or a long run. I just do more intervals now. They're a little more respectful of time. I don't try to crank out like huge one rep maxes anymore. I'm going to do five by five. So like really a sub maximal thing. And I've done a lot more like stability work where working on the little muscles in the feet and ankles and shoulders, trying to target them as opposed to just moving dynamic weight. And you dabbled in CrossFit a little bit? 
I was at the second CrossFit certification that came to Toronto. So I was in really early and I was like, hey, you know what? This is a bit of a game changer. And I liked it. It was awesome at the very beginning. And it was so much different than anything that was out there. There were like weren't any gyms. You had to try to find people at, at the gym. They were like, hey, they're doing something different. I wonder if they're doing CrossFit. And I go talk to them. That was cool because I, I learned a whole bunch of new skills, right? So I learned uh, all my Olympic lifting, which... You know, there's things that are good about it and things that are bad about it. And there are certainly, especially in the early days, they included some stuff like the people in that community were almost like guinea pigs and would do anything that was written on the workout of the day that was on the CrossFit main site. It would just be crazy stuff and they'd see who would do it. I sort of evolved my philosophy to be more like minimal effective dose. So What's the minimum I can do to get the stimulus to get stronger without crushing myself? Because I don't want to have to install handrails to use the toilet. And I want to be able to walk down the stairs. And I want to be able to ride my bike tomorrow if somebody says, hey, let's go for a mountain bike ride. You told me how you spend time in the gym to make your outdoor adventures better and calm your mind. Yeah, I'm not a huge gym rat. I do have a full gym in my garage. But that's more like some people do yoga. I like to go lift some weights. It fixes my head sometimes. It makes the rest of my day better. And if I want to go snowboard or enjoy the outdoors, then I'm able to do that, right? I think it builds that longevity. And I think within the fire service, so I was thinking about this yesterday. I think there's a prevalent idea within management that physical fitness is seen as recreation. And I don't know how to rebrand the idea that Allowing people some time to do physical activity, whether that's stretching or lifting weights or going for a walk, is more preventative maintenance. And it's not something that is seen as a recreational, individualistic pursuit. Well, maybe they haven't ever been in bunker gear and worked with an SCBA on, or it's been so long since they have that they've forgotten, or they've just changed their tune. Yeah, we both know that there's fit. And then there's, you can do three bottles fit. There's a lot of excuses I hear with people in the fire service about why they don't work out. And I think those stories that people tell themselves are very powerful. And I don't know how to be able to influence that narrative because people will only believe the stories they tell themselves. When did adventure racing come into your mind and where was that chronologically in your career? Uh, I was still in policing. But I was sort of getting tired of that and I wanted to find something that was going to be a huge challenge. So it was around around 2000, 2002, started doing some adventure racing for people who don't know. It would be paddling, like paddling a canoe or a kayak, mountain biking, and some sort of navigation overland. So trekking, finding checkpoints. And these races would last from like four to six to upwards of 24 or 36 hours. So I found that as a great motivator and I met my wife at that point and she was really big into them, my wife Heather, and we decided that we were going to start a race for emergency services personnel because I thought like those people could really use it and they would be ideally suited and in th- that experience would help sort of reshape or reframe what is challenging and difficult. Mm-hmm. And what's possible. Yeah, for sure. And. And because it was a team, you would always like, we'd always race as a team. So either three or four people and the race that we started, which was the emergency services adventure race ran from 2003 to 2013. 
and they were big races. Like you, Scott, you, I think you did them, right? I did a few of them, yeah. Yeah, so there was like 130 teams of teams of three. So, and these races would be like four to six hours long and would cover 40 to 60 kilometers and involve paddling, trekking, and mountain biking. So it involved a navigation component. And it was all teamwork based, right? So logistically, they were super challenging, but I learned an incredible amount. And, and I think people really love doing them. I feel like that event on the calendar would also be like, we've got to train for this because it's not something you just show up for. I think people would put on the miles and, and stay in really good shape or get get ready for this event. Sort of like maybe like uh, fire combat. Like that's something I never got into, but people train for that. And I don't know what's out there right now that people prepare and train for. The same group I was involved with with combat, we did the adventure racing for a little bit there too. And it was cool to have the two ends of the spectrum of something that lasts for less than two minutes and something that lasts for an entire day. Yeah, the endurance component is like something you try to balance out with strength. A lot of these guys who are really good, like endurance athletes, they're not the people that you're going to be asking to help move furniture. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, you starting that company was a very, and running it for that long, that's a pretty powerful attempt to shift the narrative, like you said, and having it specifically targeted towards emergency services. So good on you for that. And recently you've started up 100 fire hall workouts. So why don't you tell me about that? My friend Matt Russell and I, I think we were sitting having a coffee at the the table and it's like where all the best ideas are solved, having a coffee around the fire hall table. We just started talking about the stories that guys would would tell themselves about why they don't work out. And he was like a Calgary guy and I had come back to the GTA, the Toronto area. And so it was like, oh, you believe this guy said that he didn't want to like show up at a call sweaty or this guy says that I saved my energy for the fire ground. And this guy said that, well, I didn't bring shorts today, so I can't work out. So we kept on going and it's like, well, what do we have to do to counter their arguments? right? Point, counterpoint. And we felt like at some point, a lot of guys wouldn't do something at the fire hall because they didn't have a plan, right? Or they didn't know what they were doing and they didn't want to look silly. So let's create a plan for them. We're going to take 100 of our top workouts that we've done from over the years. And listen, we've made mistakes. We've certainly done workouts where you're like, yeah, we shouldn't do that again. There is a saying where you'll, you'll see it on like inspirational quotes where it's like the only bad workout is the one you didn't do or or something like that and i'm like i disagree we've done some bad workouts where (laughs) you're you're like yeah we shouldn't do that again right or we've made mistakes and so but what we did do is we tracked the ones we liked and the ones that served a purpose and we put them together into a book for guys in the fire hall and if you look around out there there's a hole in the market there really isn't workouts that are made for firefighters by firefighters. There's some Instagram channels where guys post some stuff and a lot of fire guys do CrossFit stuff and, or whatever, Jim Jones. And, but there are different requirements for people in the fire hall. So we dropped in a hundred of our favorite workouts into a book. And one of the things we did that I think that's a little different is that every page has a QR code. So the biggest winner of 2021 was the QR code due to COVID. So we took that idea where everybody knows how to use a QR code now. And when you go to the page, like workout 66, 
Well, that is this workout. We explain what the workout is in print form. You use your phone, you scan the QR code. It takes you to the explainer video and the demo. So if you're there by yourself in the hall, you don't know what to do. We can be your coach in the pocket and walk you through what you're supposed to do. So it's, it's a book, yes, but it's also an interactive guide. And then part of the book is also a workbook where you can write down how you made out. So when you come back to it later, you can see your progress. I think it'll be of great value for members of the fire service. And I hope it's part of changing that culture. What about physical or mental health challenges in your life? How have you faced them and overcome them and grown from them? We've sort of talked about this. And when I left policing, I was uh, starting to feel the crunch and the weight of doing the job. And I sort of bought myself time when I switched over to fire. It was like it was a bit of a reset button. But I have lots of friends who I came on with. And for me, that's I have 24 years in the emergency services at this point. And I've, I've seen friends who haven't fared very well. And some have done better than others. But I don't think that you can spend 20 years in a busy urban area running tons of calls and not have some sort of like occupational stress injury, right? Like it's just, it's a lot. And I think there would, quite honestly, there'd be something wrong with you if you weren't feeling that. So I know for me, like it was challenging for my family when I come home and I'd be really short or just frustrated with the day. But then as I sort of hit the 20 year plus, it got worse. So I remember going into the basement for like a sudden death and the guy, I forget what the specific circumstances are, but he was sort of slouched over dead at the table. There was a big pile of blood on the table, like looked like pudding, right? So he'd been there for a while, but I, I saw that and it reminded me of about five different other times so that I'd seen something like that before, but I hadn't specifically remembered those other five times. The idea is that they were compartmentalized or I boxed them up. And for me, that worked really well for like almost 20 years. But at a certain point, you can't box things up anymore. And sometimes would you say, do you do that consciously or unconsciously, both? I can't say it was a conscious effort, but I certainly didn't process them. I didn't process those traumatic events that I went through at work. Yeah, we see more death and carnage than most people, right? So you have to have a way to deal with that. And I just was, I was putting it away and basically compartmentalizing these, these things that I'd seen from over the years and not dealing with them. I didn't have a counselor. I didn't have anybody to talk to. Eventually it was just coming unpacked and it was causing me a lot of grief emotionally. Do you think part of it is because you have a spectrum of what you gauge as impactful and not impactful? Like walking in and seeing what you saw that day on your average, if you had to look at all the calls you've been to, you would say, well, that's not that bad. Like you would label it as on the other end of the spectrum. So you don't really need to process that. Would that be part of the problem? Yeah, that would be like a four, like a four out of 10. Like it wasn't anything. It was just another day. But is that part of the problem where you label a four to 10, but actually your mind is seeing them all as eights or all as nines? Yeah, I'm not sure, but it, there's a cumulative effect. And the fact that seeing like a dead guy slouched over the table bleeding from his face is a four out of 10, then there's a problem there, right? And I realized that I'd really become numb to the world and completely desensitized to what was going on around me. My world was quickly becoming gray. And I think that's a fairly, I don't know, like I, I don't know, but talking to a lot of other people that have a similar amount of time, 
that was a pretty, I think that's a pretty normal thing that happens to emergency responders is that if you're highly tuned or react to these emotionally charged incidents, then maybe your, your body or your, your brain sort of dials things down a bit. I'm not a neuropsychologist, but I think that's probably a normal compensatory mechanism. So anyways, I had to deal with that because it wasn't good. And when the whole world is gray and there's no color, there's no joy, there's no happiness, then it's not a good place to be in. So I really had to do some soul searching and try to figure out how I was going to deal with that. And you mentioned to me that you were open to talking about the Thamesgate explosion and that effect on you and your sense of vulnerability. There was like a major industrial fire that happened in our area and I wasn't on. I think we came off. We'd just come off shift, but I got a couple of texts. I'm like, oh my gosh, you wouldn't believe what happened. And I went and checked it. And basically this building and area was like a shipping receiving warehouse and it was loaded with, I think it was bug spray or aerosol cans and caught fire and basically the crews went in for alarm bells and while they were in it blew up and i went there the day after the explosion we were there cleaning up some hot spots and stuff taking some pictures for the inspectors and this was a massive building like about as long as a football field and half as wide and we're talking 20 feet high made completely of cinder blocks when the explosion happened there were no cinder blocks left in that wall on any of the four corners. So just seeing the destruction that was there, I'm like, oh man, the crews that went in, they didn't do anything wrong. There was, they did everything that they were supposed to, and they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Going to every alarm bell call in that industrial area after, it's like, oh man, like what's in this building? You have no idea. After that incident, our truck was put out of service because it was burned up. And the whole the whole side of it was melted from the heat of the fire and everything. So, I mean, we had to get a new truck from that. So I don't think it's something that maybe a lot of us fire guys think about is that vulnerability piece or what we're getting into. But when it hits pretty close to home like that, you're like, okay, well, I don't know how to really describe it. What point when you realized you were living in the gray, what things were you doing initially? What was your first approach to self-care and your mental health? How much of it were you aware of and how much was an education piece? What was your journey through that to where you are now? The first part of it was like trying to go get help and go do some talk therapy or some behavioral therapy, but it was really challenging. So if anybody's listening to this and you don't have any problems, I mean, that's awesome, but that's the time that you should be going to find somebody to talk to because not everybody's going to be the right fit for you. So you want to develop that relationship early and go and talk to somebody when you're feeling better, right? Because in that time that you don't have the bandwidth and you're feeling distraught or, or you need help, that is not the time to be trying to find somebody. Because it is a bit of a process and you want to be able to have that relationship already built with your therapist or a psychologist or whoever you're seeing, right? A, a social worker, whatever that is. So I did that for a bit. And I don't think that a lot of firefighters, like we're seen as strong and we solve problems and we deal with things. And so going into therapy and talking about my problems was not super high on my list of things to do. Right. And nor was it super fun for me, but I went and did that. And part of it too was one of the things that I felt was super helpful was just moving. I had to move. 
So if you're in like a not feeling well, you're having like a terrible day, doing more thinking is not going to be helpful. You're not going to think your way out of a bad feeling or a bad day, but you can move yourself out of one. And maybe that's all you can manage that day is like, hey, I just want to go for a walk. I just have to get outside and, and get some sun and just go for a walk. And just that movement, you can sort of biohack your brain into feeling a little bit better. Thinking about it isn't going to help. So that's where I've really leaned on exercise as being so crucially important for mental health. I've been working with our peer team that handles all the needs of our members and being like, listen, we have to integrate exercise and look at this a little more holistically in terms of solving our department's problems as opposed to having them live in different silos. Talk to me about the Wellness Fitness Initiative, and that came down, obviously, from the International Association of Firefighters, and it has been picked up by whatever departments want to pick it up and run with it. So how did you get involved in that, and how has that been incorporated into the department? I got involved a few years back in being involved as a, a peer fitness trainer and, and taking my background in fitness and being like, hey, well, if I'm here and I'm already running guys through workouts at work and being a CrossFit trainer guy and and working at a gym, it seems like a natural progression that I should do this. So that opportunity presented itself and I got involved in that and just would have set up programs for the crew. And I felt like when we moved and when we did exercise, it was a great team builder. It would just put us in a better mood for whatever happened. But people will say, oh, I don't work out because I work at a busy hall. <laughs> I worked at the busiest hall and we would always find ways to work out. And sometimes it wasn't optimal. Like we'd work out we get it interrupted by a call, go to a call, come back, try to start again, go out to another call and be like, okay, we got to get ready for dinner and we just pack it in. But it's just really not a great excuse saying, well, I work at a busy hall. I don't have time to work out. Listen, most people work on the 24 hour schedule. You can't find 20 minutes to do some exercise or just to move or to do some stretching. Be careful what you tell yourself. But even on those days where you keep trying getting interrupted, that's still sticking to the habit. That's still consistency. Yeah. I think a huge part of that was just carving out a portion of the day to be like building it into the routine. Listen, at eight o'clock, we, whatever, check in the trucks and we wash the trucks and like at lunches at this time. And we start making afternoon coffee at like two 30. The fire hall can be pretty structured. And I think people like that structure, but it's going to be like, Hey, listen, at three o'clock, we're doing a workout. And we talk about it early in the day to be like, what are we doing? And then we write it down and be like, three o'clock is here, right? Or you'd be like, 2.30, get your stuff on. We're going to be working out at three. Just holding each other accountable. I know there were days where I was like tired and didn't want to, but the guys were like, we're working out, get your stuff. Because they wanted they wanted somebody to play with. I feel like if anybody's struggling with that, with members of their crew, then introduce the idea early or just make it some sort of team thing. But have you ever heard the saying, we don't run on the fire ground? Well, if it's my kids in my house, I'm going to run, right? So why am I saying that other people's families aren't as important as mine? And then if I'm saying that, well, then why am I in the job? Yeah, I think that's an old time thing. Like I get the idea about being intentional with your movement, but I feel like we should be doing stuff with a sense of urgency. I couldn't say I really like ran, ran at a fireground scene until like probably last year. And it's funny because we were doing like some air bike sprints on the front tarmac of the hall. So it was summer. We were just working out doing like intervals, right? Like a minute on, minute off, but going pretty hard, pushing each other pretty good. We get a call for like a kid hanging from a window. So when you get that call, you're like, hmm, interesting. Let's see what this is. It's a, an apartment that we go to a lot. So we're just like, hmm, it's probably nothing, but you get on the truck and you go. 
So we pull into this roundabout around the, the backside of this apartment building, which is like 10 stories. And we look up and one of the side windows, there's like a kid hanging out of the window. Like, and I mean, he was like eight years old and like hanging on and his mom's got his shirt holding on to one of his arms. You can imagine like, oh my God, like this is a window that normally like a air conditioner or something would be in. And it's a sheer drop. There's no balconies or anything. This is actually an emergency that 1% that you're, you go to where you're like showing up and it's like, oh dear, this just got real, real fast. So I grabbed my guy, one of the junior firefighters and I told the captain, I'm like, we're going up to that floor. We're going to try to go in from here and you guys deal with it down here. We're the first on. And, but I mean, we ran, we ran from the truck in our full bunker gear and then went into the building and then ran up. It was six flights up to that apartment building, but you just don't know what you're going to get into. And the police got there. They, they busted the door. They bust out the glass and, and pulled them in. They were all cut up. They did a great job, but it's just one of those things where you don't know what you're going to be asked to do that day. I think it ties into the never say never or always. So I think when we say, well, you don't run on the fire ground, well, that's not the most accurate thing to say. And then if I say, well, I hate that saying, that doesn't also mean that I run all the time, every time. I'm not just running around as soon as I get off a truck doing whatever I'm doing, but there's moments that you make a decision, then you should be moving as fast as you can. Right. You got to hustle. Sure. Yeah. But so much of the stuff, it comes from a place of experience, right? And because you have so much time on the department, if you told me something that I'm going to respect that. Right. And I just don't know how much of what's being taught is coming from a place of people with that authority and that experience. I think that we have to constantly keep our minds open about like, well, what's going to work, what's not going to work. And have we tried it? And let's put ourselves in the scenario where, Hey, you know what? We may fail because quite honestly, I don't see that our training is set up to challenge us to the point where we're going to fail. And I think fundamentally that our training should be more challenging and that is the place to make mistakes. And that may just be my personal experience, but I don't think that I'm alone in saying that. Yeah. And I think maybe we should put that in context or peel that back a bit because I think it's common for instructors to set students up for failure, but not in a exploring their limits truly and then also growing them towards winning. Their, their whole approach to instructing is they should always fail. And that's when they're pushing them the hardest. Where I think what you're speaking to, if I can paraphrase it, is you're looking into putting people into new scenarios and not assuming that we're going to win at it and just keep cracking at it and being okay with failing at it over and over to eventually figure out how to win. Yes, that didn't work. You spent too much time. Okay, back out. We're going to do it again or find a better way to do this. But I think so many of our scenarios that we do are set up to just get a quick win, check off boxes, and you're out of here. That's the other side of it, right? Either you're punishing people into the ground and never letting them win because you think it's the tough love or it's the set it up so easy that everybody wins and everyone feels great, check a box. And like you said, we go home and we feel great about ourselves. And I understand the limitations within the NFPA requirements for live burns. But when you have a fire that's in a hoarder's house in the basement, it's a bit of a nightmare. There's a huge difference between going into a burn house and then going into an unfamiliar structure full of stuff and it's black and hot. 
yet I don't think we could safely train everybody on putting them in hoarder situations and letting them fight the fire. I, yeah. I Maybe that's not possible, but at least an acquired structure is that one step closer to more reality, which is a missing piece. We had the benefit of doing an acquired structure and doing like wall breaching and stuff. And it was amazing, but I've only ever done that once. Let me touch back to mental health because one of the other important things I want to discuss with you was the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy. You touched on starting out to build a better mental wellness approach for yourself with cognitive behavioral therapy and talk therapy. You're obviously already an active person and getting outdoors. Like You kind of had a lot of self-care pieces put in place there. What did you find was working, what wasn't, and then what eventually led you to the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy? I found the talk therapy helpful, but I was frustrated how there were sometimes days that I would be like, this is an off day, I'm down and out, or I'm just feeling terrible for the entire day, and it's not fair to my family. So I'm like, I need to find other mechanisms, or I want to try or explore something else that I haven't looked at yet because I mean, I may be sort of managing this, but it doesn't seem to be getting any better. I did some research. I, I looked at what they're doing to treat veterans coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq and how they're managing their conditions. And I, I came across that they were using like MDMA or psilocybin to treat them. And I think the idea at that point was that you're trying to develop new neural pathways and help them get out of those negative feedback loops that they may have gotten in during their time in service. So I, I started researching and looking were in Canada that would be an option or whether it was even an option because the last time I checked, MDMA and psilocybin are still, I think they, they started some trials on psilocybin, which magic mushrooms, whatever. But a lot of them are still illegal. Yeah. But what I did find was I did find a place in, in Toronto that was doing ketamine assisted therapy and ketamine was uh, not like a psychedelic type drug, but I would sort of disagree with that. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like a, they, it's a safe drug that they used for like the past, whatever, 50 years. And this clinic in Toronto called Field Trip was using it. So I reached out to them and got in touch with them and saying, I'm interested in trying this. I went and spoke to one of their psychologists and I met the minimum requirements. Uh, I met with a social worker who was gonna help guide me through that process. And fortunately enough for me, I was able to travel there and to do these sessions where they would take you into their like spa-like clinic and you go into a room and you were seen by a, like a nurse who would take your vitals and, and monitor your progress through the entire thing. And they would be outside the room. But during that time, there would also be a social worker who would be in the room with you. And it was like a really relaxing, it felt like a safe environment, which is key. They talk about psychedelics. And one of the big things they talk about is you want to ensure that the set and setting are really well done and that you're feeling safe and, and set up to win. So they did a really great job at that down a field trip, and they give you essentially these little tablets. I don't know how to describe them, maybe like a sweet tart or something. Ketamine does not taste good, but you put them in your mouth and sort of swish it around until it sort of dissolves, and then you swish this ketamine, and it absorbs through your mouth. And during that time, this sort of the social worker would lead you through a, like a bit of a guided meditation, to sort of start your journey. And 
the whole thing with the psychedelic assisted therapy was that you're trying to take the default neural network offline. Have you ever had a problem that you've been thinking about all day? Like you can't come up with a solution, but then you go to sleep and in the morning, it's like magic that you've come up with a solution. That's sort of the basic premise of it is that when you sleep, your brain is like a bit of a supercomputer and that your default logical mind is sort of working, but at night it sort of switches off a little bit and the two hemispheres of your brain sort of interact a little bit better and that it involves a little more of a creative process and that allows you to solve problems. So part of the problem with over 20 years of doing work in the emergency services for me was that my brain had taken some shortcuts which had led me down this negative feedback loops in terms of the way I thought about things or the way I thought about myself or it was not helpful. So I wanted to get some help with that with the psychedelic assisted therapy. And I've talked about this before, but I'm just not sure why it is not more accessible or readily available for first responders. Because having just, we've just sort of gone through a or reaching the end maybe of a global pandemic with COVID. There's a lot of people out there that are hurting, a lot of people who are very divided, and there's been an incredible strain on the healthcare system and on first responders, and our staffing levels are decimated, so that's really leaving the workload to be shared by who's left. If there are ways to be able to get people back to work or to get them feeling better or to get them feeling more productive and help them solve some of their wear and tear and occupational stress injuries that they've had from a lifetime of service, then why are we not exploring that? Because the cost of having people off and having people not at work and not have a purpose and there's no good plan to get people back to work. So if you had a workforce of a thousand people and one in five or one in four is off, then do you think we have a problem? Because that is exactly what's happening in the first responder world right now in 2022. So if you don't think that's a problem, then, you know, you can, you can just hang up this podcast and, (laughs) but I would say that there's a huge problem and we're not addressing that. With this treatment, like a lot of treatments, there are barriers and one of them would be, I guess, access. Like you said, you were close enough to be able to drive down to it. I was guided to it through you as well. And so I think you, you might have been the first firefighter ever to go through it because it was mostly focused on veterans. And then I might have been the second as far as you know. <laughs> yeah. So we've, had, we've been able to talk about it on a different level because until you've experienced the actual experience, it's really hard to put into words. So how would you describe that experience? I want to touch on a few points on it. And that's why I think it was important to talk about your journey leading up to it because they're very clear. And you said you met the minimum requirements and obviously I had to do that too, but it's, it's kind of a, you've tried everything else for quite a while. You have a healthy lifestyle. You've, you know, you've tried all the things and it seems to be symptom relief for you, right? It helps you manage. And I think you've said this before you were managing, right? And Mm -hmm. I felt that for a long time too, that I've got a lot of things in place that help me manage every day. And if I'm not doing those things, then I notice there's problems. Yeah. Just managing for the rest of your life isn't a solution. <laughs> no. Right. You need to get at the root of the problem. And I think, right. you know, you, you wanted that and so did I. We like we want to no matter what it takes, I don't care if this kills me, I'm gonna go to the bottom of the pit and and pull this out by the roots. And then yeah. and that's what getting better is worth to me. Right. 
So the minimum requirements are you do have to go through a psychiatrist and they do have to say, well, you've done all these other things and nothing else is working and you meet these requirements. So that was a key component of it for sure. And then obviously it's it's in Toronto. So it was a, they have a number of them across North America. I think they're opening up more, but access is, is an issue for some people. And then and then cost is a problem, right? Cost is a is a problem. It doesn't really make sense to either of us because if you if you've ever had general anesthetic and, and had surgery, you've probably had ketamine. Yeah. And it's covered if you go and have that surgery, but if you go and have this process to help you with your mental health, then it's not covered and it's not cheap. No. So a lot of us have the psychotherapy section of it is covered, but the ketamine doses are not. So, I mean, it's it's worth it. It's an investment that's worth every penny, but it's that's obviously not always available for everybody. Yeah, but I think if I can just pull it back, I think what you talked about was really important, and I don't think it should be brushed over, is that we're not trying to treat the symptoms. We're trying to get to the root of the problem. If we have back pain, we're not just taking the Robaxaset or Advil or painkillers. I actually want to go in and, and fix the problems that are causing the root causes to this back pain. And I think that's where like the psychedelic assisted therapy did make huge changes in terms of like even my core personality. Well, because we talked about how it's actually, it's creating new neural pathways for you. So you and I have talked about how very often your reactions, your thoughts, your feelings, you know, those are super highways. Yeah. And you don't get the option, the majority of your life to choose the logging road. <laughs> right. And then, and then take that over and over and over again to eventually have that become the new superhighway and for the superhighway to, that's not helpful for you to grow over and, and crumble. Yeah. Talk therapy is not in and of itself and a healthy lifestyle I don't think is is going to do that. You can't fight the biology of it. So something that can actually even post-treatment rewrite and rebuild neural pathways for you is massive. Yeah, I think it's huge. I think the way I put it to you and, and other people is that if you want to go do woodworking, the best place to do that is in a woodworking shop, right? You go into a specific place, you close the door, you have all the tools in there and you do that work. Mm-hmm. And you shut the rest of the world out. So for me, I really believe it was impossible for me to do the work I needed to do outside of the wood shop. The ketamine put me in a physical time and space outside of this time and space. And I was only there to do specific work. Right. And that quieted everything else down and let me do that work in that space. That's Mm -hmm. probably as clear as I can make it. It seems sort of hokey, like you're talking about like dream therapy or like some other, like you're going to a different dimension to solve your problems. But I mean, all I can say is that when I came out of those like 45 minute to an hour, hour and a half sessions, I had clear answers to problems that have been bothering me for years. For me, I'm talking about my individual experience, but I I went back, I think I did six in total and every time I went in and, and did a session, I walked away. Like at the end of it, I would journal and encourage journaling, but I would have so many new thoughts at the end of these one hour sessions that I would sit there and write because I didn't want to forget any of this stuff that seemed to be new thoughts or new perspectives or new ideas that, that seemed to be like epiphanies for me. I also remember numerous times during the sessions saying to myself, ah, I understand. I understand. I get it. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I understand. And sometimes I didn't even know what I was agreeing to understanding. Mm. 
it was at that deep of a subconscious level that some part of me was having a conversation with something, some other part of me right, or something else. And there was a teaching and, an, and a lesson and an understanding and a change occurring that it wasn't even completely apparent to me. And this is this maybe is a fault of firefighters and first responders too. We, we need to know the answers to every single thing we encounter, right? So yeah. I really needed to release that. Like, I don't need to know exactly what this is all about. As long as I'm reaching where I need to reach, it's all that matters. Right. No, you're, it's like I feel like what you're talking about is like a sense of control. Did you have a problem going in there and then being like, you're essentially having to submit yourself to letting go of that control? I don't think so. And I think this is why all that work leading up to it is important because experience with meditation, experience with flow state, mm-hmm. experience with self-awareness. I was already good with releasing myself to whatever came. Yeah, And I think it had been long enough struggling with it. It was like, I'm willing to do anything here. I'm willing to just go anywhere and do anything to make this happen. So I think I did fully just leap out of the plane with the trust that the chute would open. Right. How would you describe your ketamine sessions or your psychedelic sessions in relation to your talk sessions? Were they as valuable, more valuable, of equal weight? Maybe if the ketamine-assisted psychotherapy was integrated in there sooner, I probably would have got more out of it, or maybe it would have shortened the time frame. We get to a place in a journey and we think, well, everything else that happened previous to this needed to happen. Well, that's not necessarily true. Maybe the timelines could have been shifted slightly. Right. There was definitely a more dramatic and faster, more intense shift after the ketamine treatments than there was from the slow slog of the talk therapy. Would you describe your sessions as being pleasant or unpleasant? (laughs) I've told a lot of people that it's not for the faint of heart. (laughs) People may have a stereotype or a trope of the hippie, trippy, psychedelic experience. Yeah. That's not what it was like at all. It was very much like you have to be able to go into this with the idea of putting work in. Mm-hmm. And each session can be slightly different, but some, were, some might be the most intense experiences of your life. Yeah. But I was willing to purge. I wanted to purge whatever the heaviness was. I was personally willing to go to whatever dark space I needed to come out the other side at whatever cost. Right. Sounds like you were tired of feeling the way that you were feeling and you didn't want that to continue. Yeah. And I think that was probably your similar experience, correct? Yeah. I remembered what it was like to feel better and I didn't want this to be the new normal. That's a powerful piece there too that I've mentioned to a lot of people when I've talked about mental health is that you don't know you can feel better until you actually feel better. Yeah. Maybe you've never felt your best. And you have no idea what it even feels like. But as soon as you feel it, you're like, you can't forget the feeling. So then you're going to work to do whatever you can to get back to that feeling again. Yeah. You talked about each session being slightly different. Yeah, they were incredibly different, to be quite honest. And I think the other piece, like I didn't do a lot of research or reading. Like I I did a bit of like trying to find a solution, but I wasn't a drug guy. I hadn't really experimented with drugs. But I was at the same point, I'm like, I need to try something that's going to try to make this better. But I I didn't do any reading in terms of like what the experience is like or what should I expect or any of that. So I was really going in with no preconceived ideas or notions. I think that was good. And it's crazy. Like I wrote all this stuff down in my books after every experience. And I think there's common shared experiences that people get after that psychedelic experience. 
And the line they use is that psychedelics don't give you what you want. They give you what you need. Sometimes I was like, my brain was on fire and I just wanted to, like, I was so inspired and, and it was like a really amazing, incredible experience. And there were other times I came out and I was just like, Ooh, wow. That took me in a completely different direction. And it wasn't really expecting that. And they were like, so what do you think? Or how are you doing? And I'm like, I can't talk about it right now. Like I'm just, it's so overwhelming mm-hmm. or like, I'm really, I can't talk about it right now. Cause I haven't had time to process it yet. I needed that after every session. I couldn't really talk a lot afterwards because I didn't really have words for what happened. Yeah. And I was really reluctant about the second session because the first session was so heavy. Yeah, I'm glad you went back. And I'm glad we talked through it where I could get to a spot where I could go back. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, uh, credit to you for putting in the hard work and, and doing it. And then I think one piece we didn't touch on, too, is the sensory deprivation portion of it, too, right? So you're in the, the room, that the lights are dimmed, but at some point there's also an eye mask that goes on, and then you're put, you have headphones with instrumental music that's sort of geared towards the experience. So it really does help you stay inward, and you're not distracted by realizing that you're in a room and there's someone else there it really does help you focus like a set and setting like you said yeah i think that it's trying to encourage like you said like an introspective experience where you're trying to go inwards and and have the answers like you don't want to be looking at your hands saying like what are these things right it's a tool in the toolbox and i wish it was more accessible and i wish there were other maybe like a psilocybin type thing but the problem with that is so long it like apparently it's just a really long experience yeah they could be four hours or more yeah where the ketamine like it's completely out of your system within a couple hours but you're out of the session within i think all of mine were under an hour it'd be a it'd be a tough business to build around having people do four hour sessions right (laughs) right yeah and i think this the point of us having this conversation is just to is just to put it out there as this exists right? This might not be part of anyone's journey that hears this. It might be part of some of them. So at least it's something that they can go, huh, I didn't know that existed. Take something away from it, look into it for themselves, and maybe it's a possibility. Or by that time, I think Field Trip is looking into psilocybin as adding that to their sessions as well. Not in conjunction with the ketamine, but in a different stream, right? No, it'd be nice if there was like some sort of retreat or something where you'd be able to take your time and, and be able to go away and, and almost like a weekend sort of, I think you'd be able to get a lot of work done to the point where you could make a significant difference in people's lives. It's tough though, because I think it's really important that we're having this conversation because when somebody outside of fire or outside of policing tries to talk to people about what they should be doing, it just doesn't go over well. Right. And I think in order to be able to reach these people, you need to be within that organization or have lived their experience or can speak from a position of empathy and authority. And people might be really scared off from taking the psychedelic route because (laughs) no pun intended, I guess they're psychedelic route, but people, they, they think of these experiences. Well, I need to travel down to South America and take ayahuasca and how much faith and trust you have in you know, and that being safe, or you're trying to get access to psilocybin through whatever avenues you can here in Canada, and then trying to build your own set and setting and have an experience there. Well, you may not feel comfortable with that either. So it's just the awareness that these clinical settings geared towards this as being extremely safe are available. Well, I know I was considering whatever that South American, whatever, I was at that point where I'm like, if I have to go, to like some jungle thing and and throw up in the jungle, then 
that's where I'm going. Right. <laughs> so maybe if you're at that point, then this is a safer, more local <laughs> route. Yeah, the story may not be as awesome, but... Uh, <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think once you go into the session and you come out, you've, the story's pretty awesome. It's not about necessarily the external story of what going down there and being in the experience was, but the internal story is pretty amazing. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, how much of a lasting effect did you find that those sessions had on you? Or like, do you find that you reverted back to the way you felt before? I think there's been sort of an oscillation that's occurred. And again, I think I wouldn't like you not having expectations mm -hmm. that it was going to fix things overnight or what that quote unquote fixing it was going to be. It was just going to be what it was going to be. I think it's important for people to know too that after the session, they don't recommend you drive home. Like they recommend you or at least give a long enough time for the drug to be completely to your system to get back into functioning in the real world that way. So there's a safety aspect there. But there was still ups and downs along the way. And you're wondering, is this working? Is it not going to work? It was definitely the thing that pushed me over that last hump that I couldn't quite get over on my own with all these other attempts. And that's made a distinct and lasting shift for sure. Did your therapist notice a difference? I actually haven't been back since. Wow. So I do. And then, you know, due to COVID and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But I do need to call and book in for a session very soon and then talk about it. And I don't think maybe I could completely speak to it until now. So okay, I, I think now would be a good time to do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think part of the reason that I found it very successful for me was that I had done the work and sort of built that foundation. The psychedelic piece was like the icing on the cake that turbocharged the effort of the existing framework. And so you went back. So let's frame this for people too, that it's four to six sessions, usually six you do them in blocks, right? So you do a session, 24 hours later, you do a second session, and then 24 hours after that, you do an integration talk piece with your social worker. And that's considered a block. And then there's three of those blocks, usually within just a matter of a few weeks. But for me, due to timing in life, actually mine was over a few months. So, which I think I was actually beneficial for me, but the normal route is to go within that compressed section, which I think you experienced. Yeah, I felt like going back was going to be helpful for me. So I did go back and do like a couple booster sessions within like two weeks. What brought it up to you to think about going back? We both knew it was a possibility that we could have that as an option. So what was it for you that was like, no, I need to go back in? Yeah, I just felt like there were still things that were bothering me and I just felt I wasn't quite there yet and that I needed more help think that I will continue to keep going to a therapist and, and have that relationship because I feel like that's important. But there was just like, I need, I need something a little bit more. And I felt like that ketamine was really beneficial for me. So I, I wanted to go back and do a couple more and see now that the time, I think six months or eight months or, but it, enough time had passed. I'm like, I wonder what's, how I'm going to feel if I come back and try this a couple more times, whether I'm going to continue to progress and feel better, like, I had previously or whether I just wanted to give it a shot and it was helpful. I don't, for me, I don't think it was as helpful as the first bunch of sessions, but generally I felt generally better after those two as well. So, well, maybe it's also like when you're embarking on a physical fitness regime that you're going to see some major, major changes early on. And then yeah. near the end, when you're pretty fit, you're going to see some tweaks along the way. I know one of the sessions I had was right after coming off a shift. 
And I had a really heavy shift with a couple sudden deaths. Like I had, you know, just like a woman who had died in front of her husband in their 50s. And and it was really like emotionally charged. And then like an hour later, I had a young nurse who was dealing with COVID patients who had uh, killed herself in her home, in her family home. It was like, man, I felt like shit after that. I was rolling into the clinic in the morning to go for one of my treatments. And I'm like, ooh, dear, is this like, am I setting myself up for like success or is this going to be nightmare fuel? I went into that. I'm like, I talked to them. I'm like, listen, I had a a bad night and I don't know how this is going to go, but let's give it a shot. And after the hour, it did help me process the ideas surrounding that and, and help me find peace with that. And I don't know if that's something that would have festered and, and got worse over time. Whether I would have just continued to compartmentalize that and not feel that emotion with the use of the ketamine, I was able to to deal with it, to feel it, to process it, and then to come out the other side, right? Because so much of like, for me, like was just not feeling things. And with the ketamine process, there's a difference between me telling you something like you need to feel more love in your life or like everything is connected to like be nice to people or whatever the message is. There's a difference between me telling you that and then you feeling that. That's a key point there. I think I'm glad you brought that up that for everyone that's been through it is that you definitely at some point, if not in every session, feel a sense of you feel the unifying feature amongst all things. Yeah. Yeah, I had that experience. It was incredible, really. And I think that if more people felt that, the feeling like everything is connected, there, there is no difference between you and your neighbor and somebody across the world that just walk around the world differently and approach it, things with more empathy and understanding. What have you brought back to your crew or your department? Like, What other conversations have you had? Have you started to try to incorporate this or bring this wisdom from this journey to them? A big part of that is talking to you, right? And and to talking, having real conversations. I've talked to some people about it privately and when they find out about like I've gone through this or I'm going through this and they're more open to share, right? Because I try to be open about it and being like, hey, listen, I, I may seem like I'm super unapproachable, but I know and maybe understand the way you're feeling right now, right? So that empathy piece is big. It's not something you just talk about it's a bit of a longer conversation. I've tried to do some work with like helping it be more accessible and and having field trip and other places sort of focus more on being able to reach that first responder field because I really feel like they need it, especially at, during this time of a global pandemic. Can you imagine that maybe police officers had more empathy or were more kind and more open-minded? I think that would be generally a good thing. I don't think that it's going to impair their ability to do their job. It's generally going to be a better thing. And that if more people had this experience, it may not be for everybody, but I just wish it was more accessible so that more people could get this treatment. Mm -hmm. If it was part of their journey, for sure. Yeah. But I think you have to do like step A through F before you get to hit it with a sledgehammer. 100%. And I don't think you'll get the value out of it if you haven't done, like you said, the work prior. So it can be on your personal journey list, right? Here are the steps we're going to take over the next year or two years and start working towards it. You can have it as the big piece at the end of the self-care plan. But even if you wanted it right away, they won't give it to you. So, And it's great that that's in place for reasons. Well, what do you think that departments should be doing in terms of looking after 
their personnel like a, throughout their career that they're not doing right now? I'm at the point now where accountability is the biggest piece for me. What we can do ourselves as firefighters or, or even other ranks within the service is not playing the victim card every single time. There is some accountability that needs to take place. You can't expect your department or your city to give you everything you need training-wise, and you can't expect them to give you everything you need physically for physical fitness or for mental health. They should be doing pieces of that, but if you don't own it for yourself, then you're not going to get what you need. I just think there needs to be that full conversation about proper expectations for people individually and proper expectations for their employer. I'm big on removing excuses. The way we approach things for peer support within my department was to take seriously all the barriers and excuses that we heard and not treat them as uh, flippant and address them. Put things in place to eliminate that as an excuse or a barrier. I feel like you've hit the nail on the head with that personal accountability piece. You have to start there. I think it also comes back to the stories that you tell yourself in that if you feel like you are a victim and that's your narrative, then good luck moving forward. I think it's impossible for cities and employers to give employees every single thing they can need in every single moment of every single day to get them where they need to be. It's just, that's part of your life. And there's a lot of other aspects in your life that they're not a part of. If you expect that one piece of your life to fix all the other aspects of your life, it's not going to happen. So we have to own all those other parts. Yeah. I look at it like from an organizational perspective too, like the cost that this has for organizations. I don't see a clear path forward in terms of getting people back to work or allowing them to be productive or to have a purpose or have meaning within the organization. And then this is where we need to hold employers accountable and they need to hold themselves accountable for making every single thing possible available for their people. It's accountability on both sides. It's a relationship. It's not, this isn't a one-sided thing either way. I remember seeing something, it might've been on one of your, uh, on your incredible Instagram, but it was when you're tired of your own shit, then the real healing begins. Growth. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a personal personal accountability piece and, and being like, okay, well, what, what do I own? How much of this do I own? And do I want to be a blamer and to point fingers elsewhere? Or do I want to take and do everything I can to start to doing things better and feeling better, right? And having that, that locus of control being internal as opposed to being like the just you're always acted upon by outside forces. Right. Yeah. The internal locus of control, right. Versus external. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think administrations can hold their people fully accountable unless they're doing all the things that they can do for them. And I don't think individual members can hold their administrations fully accountable unless they themselves are doing all the things that they can do. Once you've done all those things, then you can say, I'm taking care of everything I can possibly take care of. Right. And here's your piece and you're not doing that. Mm hmm. And that, that has to happen both ways. Well, if, okay. So we're talking about like somewhat like abstract ideas. We may be like a bit of a confirmation bias where we're having like, like we have a shared experience. So what are the things that people can do that are going to be those, those actionable items that were, are going to get them feeling better or going to make them more resilient to be able to survive the 30 years? Yeah, that's owning your own life, right? And these are the things that you talked about putting in place that were your foundation. These are all the things we've heard and know. Everyone already knows them. They just don't do them. 
Right. And, and there's excuses for why they don't. So you, you have to start eating better. Yeah. <laughs> right. And smoking and abusing drugs and alcohol, probably not good. And you need to have a mentor or a guide or a counselor and you need to make full use of that. And if you have benefits that offer Cairo and massage and ABC, and then you need to be making use of those things too. Right. And you need to be reading and you need to be working on your sleep and, you know, getting help if, with those things if you can't sleep. Put these foundational things in place. Find some way to get into flow state. If it's meditation or some kind of sport, build proper relationships. Working on your relationships with your family, with your loved ones, with your partner, I think that's key and ongoing. And a good amount of self-awareness and introspection. And I think you also need to be willing to go to very dark places because we probably all have them. And be willing to be on a three steps forward, two steps back journey. Mm-hmm. If you're expecting a linear progression of health and well-being upward and onward, that, that's wrong. I mean, you or yourself are just recovering from a, an Achilles injury, right? We never know when those things are coming. So I think if you're not, again, you don't have these other foundational pieces in place, then that can really knock you back in more ways than just not being able to walk around for a while. Right. Yeah. I encourage everybody not to tear their Achilles. Yeah. Bad news. <laughs> <laughs> And then we could add in things I ask all my guests about, like hobbies, sports, things that bring you joy and get you in that flow state. And when you talk about like a flow state, how many people do you feel don't know what that is? I think a lot of people don't know what it is because they don't even know when they're in it. I think a lot of people have experienced it, but it's a self-awareness piece, right? So for you, how do you get into that state? Well, I think I've learned that there's various things I can do that put me into that place. So meditation can get me there. Music can get me there. Speaking with friends and having conversations like I am right now can get me there. I snowboarded with Tasarski this morning. That was, I had great moments of flow during that. I have flow during workouts. I have flow during drilling and evolutions at work. I have flow during calls. I think you start to find it everywhere once you know what it feels like. Yeah, it has to be challenging. One of the takeaways from this book that I read was it has to be challenging to the point where it's not too difficult that you get frustrated, but just on that cusp of being where you have to focus so much and that it's not easy because if it's easy, then your brain just goes on autopilot and starts wandering. There's like this happy middle ground where your brain just goes into that flow state. Right. So I had a key thought when you just said that. So I initially started thinking about mountain biking and snowboarding, right? So there's a risk of me hurting myself and dying if I'm not switched on, right? I'm going fast enough today where I'm like, eh, if I don't pay attention right now, I can end up in the trees and this will be it. Your mind's not wandering. It's not at all. I can't. And I'm enjoying it because I'm skilled enough to do it where I'm kind of playing with the feeling, right? Mm-hmm. Right. In that risk enjoyment kind of space. Oh, that was too fast into that corner. I got it. Right. Yeah. You know your speed. You know your limits and you play within it, right? Yeah. To steal the OLG mantra. (laughs) But what I then went to was work. So the more things that you can make second nature, the more things skill-wise that you can do without thinking, Mm -hmm. then you on real calls, that's not a stress piece for you. Right. You're comfortable and safe and competent and confident enough in those things that the challenge that puts you in the flow state is just the uniqueness of the call. Yes. Yeah, you're able to take that bandwidth and put it into the call, not opposed to like the skill set. You're not panicking about putting your mask on. Yeah, I had a really good captain who said everything you do on the fire ground needs to just be on autopilot. 
all these skills like putting on your pack and putting on your mask and whatever pulling lines it's autopilot it's just ingrained you shouldn't have to think about it it takes the stress away of all those extra things Mm -hmm. Um, but there's a comfort and a familiarity that's brought into an unfamiliar situation an uncomfortable situation would some describe that as confidence yeah i think competence We've talked here on the podcast a lot about how competence breeds confidence. Mm -hmm. And then when you're confident, you feel good. So that's going to counteract the challenging feelings you're going to have that are pushing your limits on these calls. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that some calls aren't going to push you way, way beyond your limit. And you're going to have to process a lot afterwards. That's just like, well, you mentioned the Thamesgate thing, like how no, no amount of competence and confidence is going to protect you from that. Right. But we're talking about trying to nail the 85% of the calls you run. Yeah. And that's where I struggle with like guys who don't exercise. I'm like, I like that saying. It says you can never train too hard for a job that can kill you. And I just don't understand it. And their liability is my liability too, right? So are you finding more flow state since all of your personal work? And what avenues do you use to get into it? So there was three areas that I found that really helped me. This injury has really been a bit of a setback because I would find a lot of it doing physical activity. Mountain biking, for sure. For me, that was like one hour, two hours could go. And it would just be like, (laughs) it was good for me, right? Another place I would find that I would get it was doing archery. And if you think about doing archery, like I, I like to shoot my bow, but it requires focus and breathing and intent where you can't think about anything else, and it was quiet. In a way, it was like a bit of a moving meditation. The other place I would find it would be doing snorkeling or swimming. And where you look at it again, there's a breathing component to that, where you have to hold your breath and, and focus, and, and you couldn't think about like anything else other than the situation that you're currently in right there, right then. Man, I've tried. I'm work. I'm still working on meditation, but my monkey brain is having a hard time with it. <laughs> I have an off again, on again relationship with it too, and cold, <laughs> cold exposure is, has been another thing I'm playing with as well too. So I yeah. think it's okay to have these things that you're constantly trying to crack away at, and that's right. one of the key components to meditation is that it's actually not to maintain a clear mind, but the coming back to the clear mind over and over and over again as your mind wanders is actually the practice. So. I think coming back to meditation over and over again, even though you stray from it, is probably part of the practice too. So it's it's funny you mentioned the cold therapy. I'm a huge fan of that. Like I woke up this morning and crawled out of my bed and went straight into the shower and turned it all the way on cold. And the water's coming like it is the middle of winter here in Canada and yeah. <laughs> the water is freezing. But for whatever reason, my brain craves that, that experience first thing in the morning is more powerful than like three cups of coffee. And your mind certainly doesn't wander when you're getting (laughs) blasted with cold, freezing cold water. And And there's a breathing component to that too. There is. It's a forced breathing component, right? So I would encourage people to try it, right? And to give it like a real, I'm not saying like just try it once. Yeah, it's probably terrible first time you try it but finish on cold maybe on your showers and then work your way up to like hey i'm going to do two minutes and then maybe some contrast showers or hey i'm going to go try going in the lake at the dock and seeing if i can stay in for three minutes or yeah that's something that i found to be beneficial 
I, I know there's science surrounding it. I don't need to know the science as to why it works for me, but I would encourage people to give that a shot. And it's accessible. It's something you do once a day or maybe a couple times a day. Sure. That you can tweak and see what kind of effect there is. It's a cheap and easy win, really, in my book. Yeah, and, and I think there's some sort of biohacking that actually happens where it, there is a like a physical reset when you introduce that that cold water and that breathing. And I think there's some nerve response. Listen, I, do you want to stay feeling terrible all day or do you want to try a cold shower? Yeah, and I, there's a few times where I won't do it. And one of those is if I'm really sick and run down, mm-hmm. if I'm really, really exhausted, right? if I'm already very, very cold, like so I come in from outside or snow blowing or whatever, I'm frozen, I'm not going to have a cold <laughs> shower, right? I'll have a, I'll warm my body back up. So I right. do still use warm and hot showers in the right moments. Yeah. So I feel like, but if I'm in a good place, I feel way better with cold showers than with warm now. Right. Yeah, I think there's a biological uh, toll it takes. And I think what you're you're trying to say or what you're maybe saying is that you need to listen to your body. That's just a great mantra overall for (laughs) our talk is just listen to your body. (laughs) Learn, Learn how to listen to your body. And I think that was the ketamine also helped you listen to your body and listen to your mind, right? It helps you listen. It helps you become an observer. Right. Right. Yeah. Maybe you can finish off with how you see your life a bit differently now, how you see Brotherhood and Family, the fire service now, how you see the job differently. I know there's a lot there, but not that we're time limited, but that's a great thing to button all this up on. That's a complicated question. I'm going to try to break it down. I think there's an expectation within the fire service when we talk about brotherhood or like a family component to the work. Maybe it produces a sense of entitlement for some people like, oh, you're supposed to come and help me build my garage right? Because they're part of this brotherhood. I can pull that back and to be, and to say that every relationship that we have is based on reciprocity at at a very basic fundamental level. So how can I help you? How can you help me? And how do we support each other? It's a give and take just because the acting captain on your crew is there. I think sometimes that brotherhood card gets played and maybe it's not authentic. It's based on trust and reciprocity and how do we how do we treat each other? There's definitely crews that I've loved working with and I'd, I'd go through a wall for and put my life on the line for, but that's because I've been through I've been through situations with them that have been terrible or super dangerous and they were there for me and I trust them. And those are the people that I have and still have the closest relationships with, right? Because they were there for me when when it was really bad. Is it common then that there's a lot of people around you within your job that you don't even know are going to be brothers or family to you because that situation hasn't come up? You could, <laughs> you could be put on a crew with a bunch of people you don't know, go through something that day, and then after that, would you say you had a different perspective on those people? I think that sort of fortifies or forges relationships when you go through through something with them that's a shared common experience. I, I think that... And I think crises, like high stress or a crisis situation, it will magnify people's character, good or bad. When you're angry, you're drunk, or you're under an incredible amount of stress. (laughs) (laughs) Or all three. Yeah, Yeah, I I don't know. I don't I'm The culture has changed since the change in the shifts to 24s where you used to be able to spend more time with the shift. And I only worked the 
the maybe 10s and 14s for a little bit of time before the 24s. But having worked that shift in policing, we would spend a lot more time with each other outside of work. I don't know how it is in your department, but that has certainly changed in ours. But that culture, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. And hear me out, it may be unpopular. Previously, that involved a lot of drinking. And I think that drinking was a compensatory mechanism to make people feel better. People confuse that with like maybe camaraderie. But one, it's costly. And two, it has, it didn't set people up for success down the road. When people are like, the end of your shift is done and they want to go home because they want to go hang out with a friend and snowboard who's outside of the job, maybe that's a better coping mechanism than going and spending 28 hours with your friends who have the same experience and you're developing maybe that confirmation bias that's maybe not always helpful. And I think having that reciprocal relationship with friends who are outside of the job sometimes helps you dial in your own behavior and that if you're acting poorly or, or, or doing something, you could be a better person. They're going to call you out on it. I don't think much is owed to people, right? Just by the virtue of being on the department. I feel like that has to be earned. And do you think maybe since that type of culture is changing and I'm, I'm a big proponent on there are traditions and parts of the culture that we should never lose mm-hmm. i love to break things into a million pieces but i'm also about doing that because when i rebuild it back in my mind the things that i keep are the things that should stay and the more that we do that the more you know that those things are lasting and you should always be going through that breaking down and rebuilding process and some things should stay but let's take the drinking and that kind of as I've had it defined to me, bro culture. If we're going to lose that, I guess there could be some fear of like, well, no, we're losing the fire service. But is it more so that we need to find the things we need to keep and we also need a redefinition of a truer, healthier, closer, more authentic, if I could even go that far, brotherhood? Well, can I ask you questions? This is a point where I can ask you questions. (laughs) Sure, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) How many guys have you known that have worked their entire career and do their 30 years and then have a long, healthy, happy retirement? Well, my dad's one of them. So uh, that's a strong example for me. Actually, there's a number of guys from his generation that have actually done okay. So that gives me hope. I have great hope for a number of people that I do work with that have recently retired and are going to, that they're going to be doing very well too. I think the number is increasing, but I get where you're driving at, that I don't think it's as common as it should be. Right. And I think the other part is the destructive relationships that were typically associated with the job. So when the job is everything to these people, then it comes at a cost. I'm getting near the end of my career and I'm like, well, what's going to be here after I'm no longer a fire guy? And the obvious answer is your family and friends. And hopefully you've built that strong relationship and that foundation because when you're not there on the truck, then I don't know how many people are thinking about you and and shooting you texts and being like, hey, how you doing? And touching base with you and, and coming over for coffee. Yeah, I think the embracing the identity gives you the full experience, whatever that's going to be for you, of the job. And for a lot of people, I shouldn't say for a lot of people, I would hope for a lot of people that it is a amplification of who they already are. 
Right. But not their entire life. Yeah. Or that they're even learning how to incorporate all these other aspects of their life that maybe aren't stereotypically firefighter into their job. And so you're kind of integrating. It's kind of like where no matter where you go, you're the same in every company. If you're off duty and something happens and I was no longer a firefighter and never even became one, I would hope I would act in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And you're just paying me to do it at work officially for those hours and in a different capacity. But it's not that I'm not that when I leave and it wasn't that I wasn't that before I got there. And I'm, I'm different because of what I've learned being through it, but the core of who I am for that job and the core of who I am after the job is a line that runs through from the beginning to end. Right. So it's, it sounds like you're talking about character. Yeah. Character, personality. Yeah. Your core values of who you are. I think this self-introspection of realizing who you are and this, this job is a, for me, I'll say for me, I wouldn't say it's for everybody, obviously, but for me, it's an incredibly powerful personal growth experience. It's an opportunity. It's a personal growth opportunity. <laughs> You're not necessarily going to have the experience. The job itself and being there is not going to give you the personal growth experience. It's an opportunity and you have to take it. You have to be active and seek that seek that out within the organization and in whatever the framework of the job. 100%. Yeah. How yeah. about you? Does that align with you? I think there's a, when you talk about character and reputation, there's, we should be focusing on character and your personal mission statement and your personal values and, and trying to be whatever. I think that self-awareness piece is a big one of like finding not only who you are, but what are your shortcomings? I think within the fire service, we spend so much time working on skills and drills and, and working on fire ground tasks. But then the one thing they can't teach you is how to get along with other people at the hall. There's just that, that piece that is so important where that's self-awareness, right? Like, what are my shortcomings? How do, I, how do I move forward? And they teach you all these things. The one thing they don't teach you is how to get along with other people at the hall. And I feel like if at the very beginning there was some like introduction to self-awareness, that would be a helpful framework for guys moving forward and for building a cohesive team. It should be like the team component where leaders are taught this, like that, hey, listen, everybody is different and that they see the same circumstance through different lenses and that how do you make your team work, right? So it's a team building component. And once you understand and really try to get to know the people on your crew and where they're coming from, you can build your team stronger. Yeah, I think the reality piece to that, that I'll just overlay on it, which I agree with what you're saying, is that you can't be given any ingredients out of the kitchen, pantry, and fridge and be expected to make a cake out of it. You have to have the right ingredients to make the cake. And I think you need the right ingredients, even though people can have varying personalities and they can be varied as people in however many ways you want to think they can be. There's got to be core components that you can make a cake out of, or it's not going to happen. The identity piece is a huge one. Like I know guys who are like, with a job is their entire life, and I'm like, it's not always going to be there, and you need to make a plan, an exit strategy. And I think a lot of guys are scared at the end of their career, where they're just like, I'm not sure what to do. And they hang on too long, and that's not really, that's not really good for their life and, and for their longevity. Like I, <laughs> I, I tell people now, I'm like, get out as soon as you can, 
and enjoy your life and, and find something that inspires you and, and move towards that. Being a firefighter is one piece of the puzzle, right? But it, it's not the the orbit that my life surrounds. Like, it's one piece. Right. It's not the hub. No. It's a spoke. Yeah. And, and when I'm at work, I take it seriously and I, I want to be the best at what I'm doing. And then when somebody calls 911 that I'm going to do my best and, and put myself out there. When I come home, it's like I don't wear my uniform home. I drive home and I leave work at work. And do you think that then sets you up to be the best you can be when you are actually at work? Well, I try to recover on days off. And you've talked about that where you have your days off to either decompress, do self-care, reconnect with family, and get ready for your next shift. Get some sleep. You mean actually be in a really good position so that you then are able to do something to help people that aren't? Yeah, that's it. That's it. I know it's crazy. It's a crazy idea. Yeah, imagine. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, I try to go to bed really early before I come into shift so that I'm I'm going to arrive and, and be ready, right? So I just don't want to be – I don't want to be in a situation where I let people down. That's for sure, whether that's the public or my crew. That comes back to that personal responsibility piece, and that's on me. I think that's a great place to put a button on this. Yeah. This was – Thank you probably the most I've talked in any of the episodes. You've definitely turned it around a few times, but it was great. Well, you have great things to say, Scott. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> Much love to you too. <laughs> I appreciate you making the time to actually lay this down. We've had a number of great conversations and we probably should have recorded all of them. Like I've said to a number of the people I've talked to, Yeah. but I'm glad we were able to capture this one. Yeah, me too. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity and being uh, generous with your time. 